Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stuart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Russian Roulette. I'm Max Bergman, and I'm joined solo today by Eric Charmarella, a senior fellow in the Russia and Eurasia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where his work focuses primarily on Russia and Ukraine. Before joining Carnegie, Eric worked for 12 years as an intelligence analyst and policymaker in the U.S. government. He served as Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council, and additionally worked for the National Security Council as Director for Ukraine, and then later as an Acting Senior Director for Europe and Russia. Additionally, Eric worked as a Senior Policy Analyst at the CIA, where he covered Europe in the post-Soviet space. So lots of experience on Russia, Ukraine, especially from an intelligence perspective. But he's now at Carnegie, and earlier this summer, Eric Eric published a fascinating argument on the ways the Western coalition could provide long-term and robust security assistance to Ukraine outside of full-on Ukrainian membership in the NATO alliance. He also published a shorter version of his argument in the pages of Foreign Affairs with the title, How the West Can Secure Ukraine's Future, Kyiv Needs a Binding Commitment Before NATO Membership, uh, along with a longer, more detailed version of the report for the Carnegie Endowment for National Peace titled, Envisioning a Long-Term Security Arrangement for Ukraine. We'll provide links to both of these in the show notes, so please do read them if you have the chance. So that's a long introduction, but Eric, thanks so much for for joining us on Russian Roulette. Thanks for having me, Max. So maybe you could summarize your sort of broad argument here about security guarantees for Ukraine. What would that look like? And isn't the only real security guarantee for Ukraine NATO membership? What's your argument here? Well, thanks, Max. So, you know, I started working on this project really at the beginning of this year when I felt like there was an obvious and necessary policy focus on arming Ukraine in preparation for its counteroffensive, but that there was relatively little thinking about what would come afterwards and how to prepare for the possibility that the counteroffensive would not be decisive and that Ukraine would need some form of protection and a long-term strategy going forward for the next many years. And so I conducted a you know, series of interviews with American, European, and Ukrainian officials to kind of develop a proposal that would aim to outline how a set of security arrangements could be in place in the interim period before Ukraine gained membership in NATO, which is, of course, enshrined in Ukraine's constitution. It's very popular in Ukraine. More than 80% of Ukrainians support membership in the alliance, and it's the articulated policy of President Zelensky, who applied for NATO membership last fall. But recognizing, you know, the political realities that NATO allies were unlikely to admit Ukraine while the war is ongoing, and there's still no clear path to kind of a decisive end to the war, that there needs to be this kind of interim framework. And so picking apart what that could look like was sort of the focus of my paper. And basically, I kind of argue that there's no obvious model for this. Something like it has never been done before under these particularly difficult geopolitical, you know, and practical circumstances. And so what I argue is kind of the best case scenario is this layered, let's say, lattice work of political and legal agreements, you know, both a multilateral umbrella that would provide for coalition led by the United States and Europe to provide long term weapon shipments and training for 
the Ukrainian armed forces to build a credible Ukrainian force that is sustainable and can defend the country and deter a future renewed Russian attack. So sort of a system of multilateral and bilateral security Uh, I call them obligations or commitments, not guarantees. I'm careful not to use that word because even though there's no kind of strict legal definition of it in the United States, it does evoke, like you said in the beginning, NATO membership as being the guarantee. So a system of obligations or commitments, ideally codified in the United States case by congressional action, codified in law. And this would sort of enable a predictable multi-year pipeline for military supplies. And this would in turn, allow the Ukrainian general staff to plan better while it's fighting on the ground now to project forward the forces that they'll need in three, five, 10 years and to start making the necessary acquisitions now to build that force in the future simultaneously while they're fighting this major war for their existence. Another key component of this I see is the defense industrial element of it. So, you know, both support for indigenous Ukrainian production, which of course, you know, Ukraine has historically been an industrial powerhouse on the defense side, but, you know, being able to rebuild some of this indigenous capacity so that Ukraine's industry can support its own armed forces going forward, but also targeted investments in the U.S. and European defense industrial bases to enable this sort of support for a long confrontation, which I think at this point we all understand is the case going forward. Another kind of component to this is the need for this kind of framework agreement to enable political consultations and information sharing and coordination because there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen here. I mean, it's almost like an alliance-like structure that needed to be in place, taking from the very successful Ukraine Defense Contact Group, colloquially as the Rammstein Group, um, which is coordinated aid from 50 plus countries since the start of the invasion very successfully. But something like that, maybe a little bit more nimbly that can work with the Ukrainians, again, for planning purposes, joint threat assessments, so on and so forth. And then finally, that this whole kind of conversation needs to be situated as well in the EU accession process, which again, unlike NATO, is not contingent on any particular security conditions. And hopefully Ukraine will receive a positive signal and invitation later this year when the European Council decides. And so the EU accession process, which is primarily about economics and values and political reforms and so on, needs to be very closely linked into this conversation about multilateral security assurances and commitments, you know, again, so that they kind of work in tandem. And as Ukraine makes progress towards EU membership and greater integration into the EU defense industrial base and so on, that these things can be linked up. I think that's a fantastic overview. Maybe let's break this apart a little bit. Let's maybe start with sort of the bilateral or the security security guarantees, and then maybe talk about security assistance a bit later. So on the bilateral or multilateral guarantees to Ukraine security, I'm curious how you think that would work. The Budapest Memorandum, you mentioned sort of being the kind of model of what not to do, where Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. Essentially, the US and other Western countries said that, well, they would help ensure Ukraine's security. That turned out to sort of not be the case when push came to shove. I'm curious how you sort of envision the bilateral or multilateral guarantees. Guarantees. Because ultimately, the major security guarantee is the willingness then of the United States or other European countries to come to the military aid of Ukraine. You look at Sweden and Finland, for instance, uh, when they announced their intention to join NATO, yet were not in NATO. You had countries like the UK announcing that they would essentially have a bilateral security pact with Sweden and Finland, that if Russia were to come after them, well, then they're coming after the UK. Now, that 
puts the UK's credibility on the line. There's no sort of punishment if the UK wouldn't come to their defense, but the credibility of the UK would be on the line in order to defend Ukraine. So as part of what you're talking about here, sort of guarantees of the US or other European countries, whether it's Poland and others, coming to Ukraine's defense, should Russia attack again? Or are we sort of falling short of that bilateral defense commitment? I've sort of explicitly ruled that out for the purposes of this concept, because again, the only way that I see that working, a NATO country agreeing to fight on Ukraine's behalf is in the context of NATO where Article 5 would apply. And it's very hard for me to envision a circumstance where, you know, the UK or Poland or France would provide this kind of ironclad security guarantee outside of NATO. Maybe it's possible under different geopolitical circumstances, if there were an armistice in place, if the war looked completely different and it was much lower intensity. But I think under present circumstances, the kind of policy red line, for lack of a better term, that President Biden put in place and all NATO allies, really, I mean, including Poland and the Baltics, have said we're not fighting for Ukraine right now under these circumstances. And we can't unless Ukraine is in NATO and Ukraine can't join NATO until the war is over. So putting that to the side, I don't think any kind of other formulation of a security guarantee along the lines of what you said in the case of UK's guarantee to Sweden and Finland pre-NATO membership, I don't think anything like that would be credible. Instead, the concept here is short of that, what can we credibly commit to in the most robust and systematic and rigorous possible manner that includes the maximum extent of planning and coordination to equip Ukraine with the fighting force that it will need to credibly defend and deter future Russian aggression. And so again, that's why I do avoid using the term guarantee because I know this isn't a guarantee in the traditional sense, but you know, we're looking at something that is very different. You mentioned Budapest Memorandum. I mean, that was colloquially referred to as assurances. I mean, it was assurances in the English and French text. It was translated to guarantees in the Russian and Ukrainian texts for reasons that have been explained by negotiators who were in the room, Ambassador Steve Pfeiffer and others, as kind of a political deal to sell it to a skeptical Ukrainian audience while remaining within the UK and US political and legal confines. But that was a very vague document. It was negative security assurances, such as the guarantors or the signatories would not attack Ukraine, right? But there was only one real positive assurance, which is that they would seek action in the UN Security Council if Ukraine's territorial integrity were violated. And of course, the United States and the United Kingdom did that uh, in March 2014 after Russia invaded Crimea the first time. And so in a sense, the US and UK kind of strictly fulfilled their obligations there. One can argue that the spirit of it was understood very differently in Ukraine. But what we're talking about here is something completely different, which is a set of very specific, concrete, positive assurances to provide weapons, training, intelligence, and so on and so forth, basically for the indefinite future. And when we look at models, again, I said in the beginning that there's no real clear, like perfect model here, but we look at the example of Israel, which has no bilateral security treaty with the United States, but we have a system of political and legal commitments through memoranda of understanding and other documents where it is widely understood and accepted that the United States provides significant military and intelligence support to Israel in order to defend itself. And that system has basically worked in Israel's case since after the Yom Kippur War. And of course, there are differences. We can kind of drill down on those. But something like that, an Israeli-inspired model, seems to be the way to go. 
Yeah, no, I think the Israel model is very interesting. And maybe we can unpack that, and especially in terms of the security assistance. The security assistance that we provide to Israel and also to Egypt, you know, since the Camp David Accords in, I think, 1979, when there was talk when I was in the Obama administration of cutting assistance to Egypt, the Israelis were one of the biggest advocates for us to not do that after the military coup that occurred in Egypt. But when it comes to Israel's security assistance, Congress annually appropriates this as part of the normal budget process to the State Department, more than three billion billion dollars a year. As you note in your articles and reports that we have a 10-year memorandum of understanding with the Israelis, which I believe now is more than $3.5 billion a year annually. And I think it was updated in 2016. And this is a really important memorandum. It's really useful for the Israelis. I guess the question here, though, is that it's backed by sort of unanimous support in the U.S. political system, in Congress. The notion that anyone would cut this funding is sort of not there. How do you think about the current political dynamics around around Ukraine? And how does that complicate trying to then create sort of an Israel-style security assistance model that's ultimately built on, you know, robust congressional support? I think that's a great question. I do believe and hope that the Biden administration can work with Congress on a bipartisan basis to get whatever bilateral security commitment is negotiated. We know that, you know, the State Department is leading negotiations now stemming from the G7 declaration that was signed in, at the margins of Vilnius. Actually, maybe mm-hmm. maybe unpack the G7 declaration sure. a, a yeah. little bit, and we can maybe sidetrack and go back to the Israel question in a second, but okay, it's probably sure. worth providing a little bit of background on what actually happened at Vilnius and what the G7 statement was that sort of came during the NATO summit. Right. So in the weeks and months leading up to the NATO summit in Vilnius, um, the Ukrainian government had been making a very strong and concerted push for an invitation to join NATO. And while there was some support for an invitation, ultimately the United States was not willing to support it for, I would say, understandable reasons, which is that an invitation is not merely a symbolic step. It's a commitment to move forward on a process in a reasonably expeditious manner. And given that the end of the war is not yet in sight and the conditions for actually taking Ukraine into the alliance are not yet clear. The United States government was not prepared to make this commitment that may or may not have been credible. So Ukraine did not end up receiving an invitation at the NATO summit. Instead, and again, the way this was rolled out, one can debate whether it was done the right way and messaged properly. I think it was unfortunately lost in a bit of the noise and uproar about the whole NATO invitation debate. But for months in advance, there had been negotiations ongoing between Ukraine and its key partners, the United States, you know, Germany, France, UK, and others, about some sort of multilateral security declaration built actually upon initially a Ukrainian concept called the Kyiv Security Compact, which was proposed last September by President Zelensky's chief of staff, Andrei Yermak, and the former NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen, which was a sort of proposal to codify long-term security support and training for the Ukrainian armed forces at an interim basis before NATO and EU membership. You know, taking from, inspired from, initially this Ukrainian concept, the G7 countries and Ukraine negotiated this joint declaration of support for Ukraine, which basically what it comes down to is sort of an indefinite political declaration to support Ukrainian military reconstitution and the building and sustaining of a Ukrainian force that can credibly defend the country and deter a future renewed major Russian attack. There were kind of elements there on defense industrial base, some mentions of kind of specific realms of capabilities, although it didn't drill down too much. 
But again, it was a, a major step, in my view, to begin the process of formalizing the security assistance that we've been giving since the start of the full-scale invasion. Taking what we've done and moving it to a qualitatively different level, again, for as long as it takes, quote unquote, which you know a lot of the administration likes to say, to put some meat behind that and say, this is a kind of framework document for what we're talking about going forward. Now, stemming from that declaration made by the G7 countries, which the EU also signed on to, there's been a process of of negotiations that's been launched on bilateral commitments that would stem from this multilateral declaration where each of the signatories would negotiate a much more specific and I would say politically binding and ideally legally binding set of commitments about what each country is prepared to do for Ukraine over what time period and so on and so forth possibly attached to dollar amounts, depending on which country. We've already seen several of the signatories come out with the beginnings of visions about multi-year, multi-billion dollar aid packages. Again, starting to think about big contracts and big weapon systems that are going to take a while to produce and kind of these big acquisition decisions need to be made relatively soon. The bilateral negotiations between Ukraine and the United States are going on now. It's been pretty quiet in terms of what's been revealed publicly, but there's very clearly a robust conversation going on. And the hope is that the end of that produces something that, you know, looks not exactly like the U.S.-Israel MOU, but something inspired by that, a document that both governments can refer to that this is kind of the coordinates, the policy North Star on our security assistance. Now, that gets to your question about the political dynamics here, because you rightly note that in the Israel case, even though the MOUs with Israel are executive level agreements and not technically statutory requirements, there has been very broad bipartisan, bicameral political support for Israel going back to the 70s. That has sort of stabilized the relationship and prevented it from going through these periods of crisis, number one. Number two, Congress actually has taken some steps to codify elements of the U.S.-Israel security relationship into law. So in 2008, Congress amended the Arms Export Control Act to stipulate that any U.S. arms sales to Israel's neighbors cannot damage what's called Israel's Qualitative Military Edge, or QME. It is its ability as a smaller country to have the technological, tactical, intelligence superiority to defeat a potential coalition or single adversary that's numerically superior. And so the logic of that kind of applies in Ukraine's case too, smaller country fighting a much larger country. But again, Congress took that step to weigh in on this debate. And what it does is it involves Congress in the policymaking on U.S security assistance to Israel by, you know, essentially requiring, you know, ongoing reporting from state and defense. Are we complying with this? And it raises it to a political level that puts sort of legal guardrails on our support. One quick point on QME, having been in some of the QME bilateral discussions, what it does is it works both ways, where essentially we both would have to, when we're providing support to Israel, look at the Israeli forces and look to strengthen them. But it also impacted how we thought about other countries in the region and the equipment that we were selling to other countries in the region. So if we were going to sell a system to a Gulf country, how would that impact Israel's qualitative military edge would be a major conversation, not just internally, but then also with the Israelis. In the Russian case, we wouldn't be selling anything to Russia. We would have to monitor what the Russians are doing militarily and then try to take steps to support Ukraine. But I guess the question is, Ukraine's not going to have an edge here. So you're looking at sort of another formula for how this would work for Ukraine. 
That's right. You know, again, there's no way to have a real edge when it comes to the nuclear dimension, where Ukraine is not a nuclear country and Russia is a nuclear superpower. The dynamics are reversed in Israel's case and by the sheer, basically, asymmetries in size. But I kind of propose that a qualitative deterrent balance can be achieved, where you can do a mixture of capabilities matching and offset to ensure that Ukraine has, you know, for example, and you see this actually happening in real time, the ability to hold targets deep inside Russia at risk. And then again, it's a nascent capability, but if that's built out over the course of years and Ukraine clearly has a robust ability to respond to Russian you know, air and missile attacks deep into you know, the Ukrainian heartland with similar ones into Russia, it starts to change the Kremlin's calculus of the risks and benefits of further aggression. And so it starts to impose its own kind of deterrent logic. And again, this is no silver bullet. This is not going to happen overnight. There's no single system, ATACMs, F-16s, nothing like that is like the magic solution here. But like you said, in the Israel case, what this does is it imposes a structure of discussions where there's a joint assessment of Russian capabilities, adversarial capabilities, assessment of, you know, Ukrainian capabilities, what they need, what the differences are, in what areas is there a major gap, how can partners fill in, how can this be coordinated? I mean, another big difference is that in Israel's case, it's only the United States giving this aid. And so it's a completely bilateral discussion, which in many ways is a lot easier. Here you have almost 30 countries that have already signed on to the G7 declaration. So you have a lot of pieces in motion that are going to require coordination, which is kind of why I think this mechanism for multilateral consultation needs to be sort of baked in. But again, I do think it's doable to create at least this system of balance that could over time slowly reshape the Kremlin's thinking about its ability to prosecute a war basically with impunity, which clearly was the thinking when Putin decided to launch a full-scale invasion in February of last year. I think your colleague across the hall, Mike Kaufman and Rob Lee, wrote, I think, a really important piece in Foreign Affairs earlier this year, highlighting that the West sort of needs a longer-term strategy for Ukraine. I think my one, not critique of that piece, but maybe quibble, was I think right now a lot of the funding that we have for Ukraine is all focused on the short-term, getting Ukraine what it needs to, to fight tomorrow and today, but less focused on 2020. 2026, 2025, you know, future out years. And so it's really hard, I think, right now from the funding environment for just those doing security cooperation, security assistance efforts to think long term when they are looking at very limited funding. So the idea, I think, that you're outlining, which I fully support and on board with, is that you're trying to sort of create a separate pot of money, it seems like, for longer term support. This is like you're preparing for college here. This is sort of money locked away. But what it would enable is Ukrainians right now if they decided they wanted Saab Gripen planes to be the future of their Air Force, they could go to the Swedes and say, okay, we're going to buy 100 of these. We know they're not going to be delivered until 2027. That's okay. And here's the money and we're good for it. Is that the general? Yeah, that's a big part of it. I mean, again, there should be an understanding, you know, among Americans and European publics that we're not talking about writing blank checks to the Ukrainians here. I mean, again, Security assistance is a huge tool of American statecraft. In the vast majority of cases, when we quote unquote write a check for security assistance, it goes back to U.S. manufacturers, ultimately because we're paying for other countries to purchase U.S. equipment. And that's going to be the case for European suppliers as well. And so I think what makes this trickier and why it needs to be coordinated under this tight multilateral structure is a lot of countries are going to want to get in the mix. You know, you're going to get a lot of different countries who say, we want to sign the 
big contract to provide infantry fighting vehicles to Ukraine and arm a division's worth of Ukrainian forces for the next 10 years, which is going to be a many, many billions of dollars worth of contract. But other countries are going to want to compete over that. Again, the hope is that the United States and its European partners can kind of deconflict some of this at a political level, while really having an understanding that's generated from the Ukrainian general staff about what they envision their force to be in the future. Again, it's about kind of planning in a sustainable way and then having money authorized that is not only this throw it over the transom, immediate emergency ad hoc supplemental support. It needs to be built into the budget. It needs to be multi-year money and it needs to be structured and include also, I should add, accountability mechanisms, which again, we've seen, you know, no real evidence that U.S. security assistance has been misused or abused in Ukraine. But, you know, members of Congress who have expressed some concern about this are in the right to say that, of course, we need inspector general. We need, you know, kind of mechanisms to make sure that the support is being used wisely, given the scale of it. And so that should sort of be baked into the structure as well. Yeah, the Israelis, for instance, you know, it's not as if the $3.5 billion goes to Tel Aviv and then just stays in Israel. It basically never leaves the United States. The Israelis have an office in New York that is devoted to figuring out contracts and how they're going to buy U.S. equipment. And I think divvying up the pie essentially with Europeans, that would be, I think, bureaucratically challenging, but definitely not something that couldn't be done. Two sort of final questions I have. One, so I fully agree that it's important for Ukraine and also the signal to send to Russia, that we're in this for the long haul. I do question whether the Ukrainians would be able in the immediate term to both be fighting a war and doing that kind of intense operational contracting and budgeting for building their long-term future force. That oftentimes stretches militaries in peacetime. And I'm curious if that's something you've thought about or whether that's just maybe they don't need to solve everything, but they could figure out what sort of plane they want, the big ticket items, and get those on contract. Or have you thought about whether they have the bandwidth to frankly think about the out years when they're trying to take every kilometer right now. I mean, totally. There's obvious bandwidth challenges. I do think that's why our ability to kind of staff the coordination mechanisms, you know, we've been building up this security assistance group, Ukraine, and these coordination mechanisms based in Wiesbaden, Germany, where DOD is putting in a lot of personnel and resources to be able to do some of the legwork on the planning and envision scenarios, assess Russian capabilities and whatnot, so that when it comes time to have the conversation with Ukrainians, you know, you're not starting from scratch. And you kind of share essentially as a consultant, like we've done this work, let's show you what we think the threat environment is going to be. Here's some possible scenarios for what the Ukrainian armed forces can look like. What's your general strategy and approach to this? And then not have to put it all on the Ukrainians to coordinate. Because I do think that kind of the worst case scenario is that kind of Rammstein style coordination mechanisms atrophy over time. And then it becomes just a bunch of free radicals and like dozens of countries going to the Ukrainians saying, what do you need? What can we give you? And then the Ukrainians have to deal with 54 countries at once. So we're taking on a huge role here in corralling Ukraine's partners. And I think that that needs to be part of the structure of a security commitment going forward. Yeah, one of the things also with essentially the Ramstein contact group, in general, a U.S. security partnership with a country is that we're also hopefully working with 
whatever country is receiving U.S. security assistance to make sure that they're actually getting equipment that is really useful and something that they really need. And so some of that bureaucratic long-term planning is something we can do. Maybe back to end it on our final question to sort of get back to our political ability to do this. Now, I was sort of critical of the administration with the G7 statement that happened at NATO. I was expecting a big dollar figure to be put on it, that allies together, we're going to commit $150 billion over the next 10 years together to support Ukraine or whatever number it would be, 50 billion over five years, 50 billion over 10 years, some big number that then would enable Ukraine to go out and start inking some of those contracts. We haven't yet seen the dollar numbers. And I think one of the concerns within the administration is that they don't want to really write a check that they can't cash. And right now we're awaiting Congress to approve additional supplemental funding for Ukraine to just maintain that short-term effort to get Ukraine equipment to clear mines and artillery. So are you concerned about how do we make a long-term security assistance commitment with this current Congress? And you mentioned this, but the ally part of this seems to build a degree of resilience, that if we were to drop off because of a political shift or Congress decides to rebuke an MOU, that at least others would sort of be locked in. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Obviously, the political dynamics in the United States are very, very challenging. I do still believe there's broad bipartisan support for aid to Ukraine. There's been recent public opinion polls that have shown that. And I think that certainly in the Senate, the support is very strong in the House. It's more complicated, but I do still think there's a pretty strong bipartisan coalition in support. Unfortunately, the supplemental has become hostage to other political fights that are playing out now. And so we'll kind of have to see how they resolve. I do think in the end, it's possible that this White House will be able to work with Congress to, again, codify some element of this. It won't be able to codify an overall number, I think, for an extended period of time, which is probably why the White House has avoided putting a number on it. But to codify some principles of the security commitment, whether it takes the form of something like, you know, statutory term, like QME in Israel's case and everything that stems from that, or it looks a little bit more like the Taiwan Relations Act, which is kind of a framework law that has governed U.S. policy towards Taiwan for more than four decades. Something like that could also work. But again, Congress needs a stake in this. And I do think the administration has started those discussions with Congress. But there's a chicken and an egg problem because the negotiations with the Ukrainians are still playing out. And the administration needs a little bit more of a sense of what the nature of the concrete commitment is going to look like and what Ukraine's vision for its future force is before it kind of goes to Congress and briefs them on what they would need in terms of congressional action. And that chicken and egg problem also applies to the other security commitments where, again, the United States doesn't want to come out with a huge number on its own with the fear that other countries might say, oh, well, you're paying for it, so we don't have to. At the same time, showing our level of commitment has the potential to generate additional commitments from partners. And so figuring out the staging of this and the choreography of it is very complicated. And I think that's why, unlike in the run-up to NATO, where you saw a lot of this playing out publicly, this has been very quiet. And I think the relevant teams are working on this in a very detailed manner to try and get this to a place where when it's unveiled, it will show, number one, burden sharing with Ukraine's partners in Europe, U.S. allies in Europe, and number two, that it will be a credible number in a credible structure and kind of planning mechanism that then Congress will feel like there is a bit of a longer term strategy there. And it's not just going to be continued requests for supplementals indefinitely.
One just last question. Is there legislation on the Hill that you've seen either from the Senate or talk of amendments to the NDA coming up? I know right now we're bearing down the potential threat of a government shutdown, but is there any legislation you're tracking or if you've seen anything of that coming from the Hill as opposed to the administration? I haven't seen anything coming from the Hill yet. I think partly because there's so many other things going on, but I think also partly because there has not really been a clear articulation of how this G7 declaration is going to be implemented. And so I hope in the coming months that, you know, there can be these executive legislative discussions about how to coordinate this. I'm confident that ultimately we can get there because the support is there, but politics is is very tricky now. And I can't pretend to be an analyst of American politics. I follow Ukraine and Russia, not the United States. But to me, it does look challenging. I hope and I believe that we can get there. Well, hopefully some ambitious Hill staffers are listening to this right now and think, oh, this is a great idea for some legislation that we'll propose and then maybe becomes law and that either helps the administration or, or pushes them as well. So, Eric, I want to thank you for, for joining us today. It's been great to have you. Thank you for all your work on this topic. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Let me also thank our listeners. And remember, you can find both of the pieces that were discussed, authored by Eric, in our show notes. And additionally, please remember to subscribe to our show along with our sister podcast, The Europhile, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could also please give us a positive rating and review, it helps people come and find our podcast. So thanks again, Eric, for joining us. Uh, It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot, Max. Great to be here. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at csis.org.